Good morning. And welcome to the very first day of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm Diana Hope, and I'm absolutely delighted to be chairing this first Meet the Author session um, because the author in question is the wonderful Kate Atkinson. Um, we'd like to give some very warm thanks to our long term and generous sponsors, Bailey Gifford. And uh, Kate will read from her book when will there be good news and then we'll have a conversation and there will be time for you to ask questions from the floor. Kate Atkinson was born in York and studied in Dundee and now lives in Edinburgh. Her first book, Behind the Scenes at the Museum, a witty, literary and original and subversive family saga, won the Whitbread Book of the Year and set the standard for what was to follow. Human Crokey, Emotionally Weird, not the End of the World, which was a collection of intertwined short stories. And then came Case Histories, which won the Saltire Book of the Year Award and the Pre-Westminster, and introduced us to Jackson Brodie, along with a dazzling and complex cast of characters whose lives were fabulously intertwined in the way that only Kate Atkinson can, can make work. Then came um, the second book featuring Jackson Brodie, um, and then this Sorry, I've lost my... <laughs> That's the, yeah, the title I, I can't remember. Exactly. <laughs> well, I know. Case histories, of course, and then the um, One Good Turn, which again featured Jackson Brodie and was indeed set in, in Edinburgh at the Edinburgh Festival. Today she will read from the fabulous When Will There Be Good News, which has met with the most terrific and well-deserved acclaim. It's a dark novel, which is absolutely stiff with, uh, with bodies and loss and tragedies. But through the absolute magic of her writing is a very life-affirming, redemptive, and extremely funny book. So please join with me in giving a huge welcome to Kate Atkinson. Can you all hear me? because I am the curse of electronic equipment. I was speaking to my lovely and ancient aunt in Canada last night on the phone, and she said, your last book, what was the title of it? And I said, I can't remember. <laughs> so don't ask me to remember anything. I'm reading from quite near the book when a character called Reggie, who's a 16-year-old, these lights are very bright, I can't see any of you, I can't see anything except the paper. Um, uh, Reggie's a 16-year-old orphan who uh, has been pretty much abandoned by the world apart from her employer, who's a, a GP, and she looks after her baby. And Reggie no longer goes to school, but she still visits her old, oh, thank you, her old, um, her old classics teacher, Ms. McDonald, because she's still trying to do her A-levels, even though she's not at school. And in exchange for looking after Ms. McDonald's old dog, while Ms. McDonald goes out, uh, Ms. McDonald still tutors her in um, the classics. Ms. McDonald is uh, dying. And uh, I think that's all we need to know. When Reggie arrived at the bleak bungalow in Musselburgh, Ms. MacDonald opened the door and said, Reggie, as if she was astonished to see her, although their Wednesday routine was invariable. From being a woman who took pride in the fact that nothing could surprise her, Ms. MacDonald had turned into one who was amazed at the simplest things. 
Her left eye was bloodshot as if a red star had exploded in her brain. It made you wonder if it wasn't better just to dive down into the blue and check out early. Every Wednesday they ate tea together and then Ms MacDonald went to her healing and prayer meeting while Reggie did homework and kept an eye on Banjo, Ms MacDonald's little old dog. Reggie didn't know what kind of a cook Ms MacDonald was before her brain started to be nibbled at by her crabby tumour, but she was certainly a terrible one now. Tea was usually a stodgy macaroni cheese or a gluey fish pie, after which Ms MacDonald would heave herself up from the table with an effort and say, Dessert? as if she was about to offer chocolate cheesecake or creme brulee, when in fact it was always the same low-fat strawberry yoghurt, which Ms MacDonald watched Reggie eat with a vicarious kind of thrill, which was unsettling. <laughs> Ms MacDonald didn't eat much anymore now that she herself was being eaten. She was in her 50s, but she had never been young. When she was a teacher at the school, she looked as if she ironed herself every morning and had never betrayed a trace of irrational behaviour, but now not only had she embraced a crazy religion, but she dressed as if she was one step away from being a bag lady and her house was two steps beyond squalid. She was, she, she said, preparing for the end of the world. Reggie didn't really see how a person could prepare for an event like that. Tonight it was oven-baked spaghetti. Ms MacDonald had a recipe that made real spaghetti from a packet taste exactly like tinned, which was quite an achievement. <laughs> Over the spaghetti, Ms MacDonald was blethering on about the rapture and whether it would be before or after the tribulation or the trib, as she called it, with cosy familiarity as if persecution, suffering and the end of days was going to be on the same level of inconvenience as a traffic jam. Ms. MacDonald belonged to the Church of the Coming Rapture, a made-up kind of religion, and was herself, she announced smugly, rapture-ready. She was a pre-tribulationist, or pre-tribber, which meant she would be whizzed up to heaven business class while everyone else, including Reggie, had to suffer a great deal of scourging and affliction. 70 weeks, actually, Reggie. So a lot like everyday life then. <laughs> There were also post-tribulationists who had to wait until after the scourging, and there were also mid-tribulationists who, as their name implied, went up in the middle of the whole confusing process. Ms MacDonald was saved and Reggie wasn't. That was the bottom line. Yes, I'm afraid you're going to hell, Reggie, Ms MacDonald said, smiling benignly at her. <laughs> Still, there was one consolation. Ms MacDonald wouldn't be there nagging her about her Virgil translation. When the yoghurt was ceremoniously finished, Ms MacDonald exclaimed, goodness, look at the time. Nowadays, she was continually amazed by the time. It can't be six o'clock, or eight o'clock, it feels more like ten. Reggie could just see her when all that scourging and affliction started, turning to her in astonishment and saying, that's never the end of the world. <laughs> was there a kind of lottery where God picked out your chosen method of going? Heart attack for him, cancer for her. Let's see, have we had a terrible car crash yet this month? Not that Reggie believed in God, but it was interesting sometimes to imagine. Did God get out of bed one morning and draw back the curtains? Reggie's imaginary God had a very domesticated life. And think, a drowning in a hotel swimming pool today, I think. We haven't had that one in a while. The awful thing was that Ms MacDonald was the nearest thing that Reggie had to a family. Reggie Chase, orphan of the parish. Poor Jenny Wren, little Reggie, the infant phenomenon. <coughs> Reggie did the washing up and cleaned the worst bits of the kitchen. 
No one seemed to have told Miss Macdonald that cleanliness was next to godliness. Reggie poured neat bleach into the tea-stained mugs and left them to soak. Ms. MacDonald had mugs that said things like, it's all about Jesus and God is watching you, which Reggie thought was unlikely. And if he was, you'd think he'd have something better to do. <laughs> Mum had a Charles and Diana wedding mug that had survived longer than the marriage itself. Mum had worshipped Princess Di and frequently lamented her passing. Gone, she said, shaking her head in disbelief. Just like that. All that exercise for nothing. <laughs> Reggie separated the rubbish into the red, blue, and brown bins. Ms. MacDonald didn't recycle anything. She was possibly the least green person on the planet. There was no point in preserving the earth, Ms. MacDonald explained in a kindly tone, because the last judgment couldn't occur until every last thing on the planet had been destroyed, every tree, every flower, every river, every last eagle and owl and panda, the sheep in the fields, the leaves on the trees, the rising of the sun and the running of the deer, everything. And Ms. MacDonald was looking forward to that. Reggie was definitely going to start up her own religion, one where things were cared for, not destroyed, one where the dead were reborn and not in a symbolic way either, without everything else having to die. Then her mother would be back on the sofa watching Desperate Housewives and working her way through a packet of tortilla chips. No Gary sitting there pawing her though, just Mum and Reggie, together forever. It had been just Mum and her for so long. And then Gary came along and Mum started saying, my boyfriend this and my boyfriend that, and suddenly she was having sex and all her friends wanted to come round and talk about it. Her mother preening and giggling three times in one night, and her friends shrieking with excitement and spilling their wine. <laughs> Gary wasn't evil, he was just a big lump, who until he met Mum, and after he met Mum as well actually, spent his time sitting around all day in his greasy denims at the back of the bike shop with a load of Gary clones talking about the Harley Davidson 883L Sportster he was going to buy when he won the lottery. He courted Mum with cheap hothouse roses from the shell shop and boxes of celebrations. And when Reggie protested at this cliched attitude to romance, her mother said, you won't hear me complaining, Reggie, fingering the thin silver chain of the harp-shaped locket he bought her for Valentine's Day. Gary was going to take her to Spain for two weeks. Reggie's mother hadn't been on a proper grown-up holiday since she went to Fuerteventura in 1989, so he could have taken her to Butlins and Skegness and she'd have been impressed. Reggie received a postcard a week into the fortnight, so her mother must have written it not long after she'd arrived. It was a photograph of the hotel, a white concrete building that looked as if it had been constructed out of badly stacked blocks. At the rectangular heart of it was the swimming pool, turquoise and empty, bordered by neatly arranged white plastic recliners. There were no people at all in the photograph, so it was probably taken very early in the morning. Everything is yet unsullied by wet towels and sun cream and half-eaten plates of chips. On the back, Mum had written, Dear Reggie, hotel very nice and clean, food plentiful, our waiter's called Manuel, just like in that John Cleese thingy. Drinking a lot of sangria, naughty, naughty. Already made friends with a couple called Carl and Sue from Warrington, who were a good laugh. Missing you loads, back soon. Love, Mum, XXX. Gary had added his name at the bottom in the big round hand of someone still not convinced by the concept of joined up writing. <laughs> After her mother died, Reggie always kept the postcard from Spain. She had studied every detail of it as if it might contain a secret, a hidden clue. Her mother had died right there in the empty space of turquoise water. And although Reggie had seen her in The Undertakers after she was shipped home, 
A tiny part of her believed that her mother was still inhabiting that bright postcard world, and if she scrutinised the picture long enough, she might catch a glimpse of her. Mum had woken up before any other guests were about. She was always an early riser. And leaving Gary snoring off the previous night's sangria, she had put on her swimming costume beneath her pink toweling dressing gown and made her way down to the pool. The pink toweling dressing gown had dropped where she stood, poised at the edge of the deep end. Reggie imagined her raising her arms above her head and then plunging into the cool blue of oblivion, her hair streaming after her like a mermaid. Afterwards, at the inquest in Spain, the police reported that they had found her cheap silver Valentine's locket at the bottom of the pool. Yeah, a bit of a dodgy clasp, Gary admitted guiltily to Reggie, and speculated that it had come off while she was swimming and that she had dived down to retrieve it. No one could know for sure. No one was there to witness what happened. By the time someone noticed that her beautiful long hair was trapped in a drain down in the turquoise depths, it was too late. It was a waiter who spotted her setting up tables for breakfast. Reggie wondered if it was the Manuel of the postcard. He had dived in, tried and failed to pull the English mermaid free. Then he had climbed out of the pool and run to the kitchens where he grabbed the nearest knife, dashed back to the pool, dived into the water again and sawed through mum's hair to liberate her from her underwater prison. He attempted to revive her. At the inquest, he was commended for his attempts to save the poor unfortunate tourist, but of course, to no avail. She was gone. No one was to blame. It had been a tragic accident, etc., etc. Which it was, after all, Reg, Gary said. He had attended the inquest and came to see Reggie on his return from Spain, appearing unannounced on the doorstep, a six-pack of Carlsbergs in his hand, to toast a wonderful woman. He had slept through everything. By the time he was woken, bleary and hungover by Carl and Sue from Warrington, hammering on his door, it was all over. He was, he said to Reggie, all choked up about what had happened. Yeah, Reggie said. Me too. The Spanish police returned the heart-shaped locket to Gary, who kept it as a souvenir. No mention was made at the inquest of what had happened to the thick lock of Mum's hair left down in the pool, or indeed the knife that had cut through it. Did it go in the dishwasher? Was it back chopping vegetables for a paella by the time the day was out? <laughs> Aye, it just goes to show, Gary said, turning philosophical after the third Carlsberg. You never know what's waiting round the corner. Gary left after the fourth Carlsberg and Reggie didn't see him again until a few weeks ago when she ran into him in the supermarket where he was browsing the tinned soup aisle in the company of a woman with too much henna in her hair. Reggie waited to see if he would recognise her but he didn't even notice her. His brain already stretched a breaking point from making the choice between Heinz big soup beef broth and bachelor's cream of tomato. <laughs> it was the same supermarket mum used to work in seemed disrespectful to be in it with another woman, almost like infidelity. Usually, round about this time of the evening, Banjo would sit by the back door and start to whine, and Reggie would say to him, Come on then, poor wee scone, time for your constitutional. And Banjo would waddle unsteadily along the street to his favourite gatepost, where he would awkwardly lift an arthritic leg. He could just about make it to the gatepost, but usually had to be carried back. But tonight, the little dog was lethargic and showed no interest in going out, lying instead in front of the heat. Oops, sorry. Lying instead in front of the heat of the gas fire. Reggie was grateful. It was a horrible night. Gusts of wind repeatedly lifting and dropping the brass knocker on Ms. McDonald's front door, so that it sounded as if an unseen visitor was desperate to get in. Kathy come home to Wuthering Heights. Mum's ghost looking for Reggie, or just nobody, and nothing.
Thank you. There's a great deal going on in this book. There's absolutely masses happening. There's the four very, very strong characters, Reggie, who you read about just now, who's perhaps the strongest. There are two other women, Joe and Louise, the doctor and the policewoman. We are having terrible trouble remembering <laughs> everything. <laughs> I couldn't remember Louise's name. <laughs> And then, of course, there's Jackson Brodie, who people have rather seized on, but he is mm. the only man. He's, 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 he is, he's yeah. one of four, and he's perhaps you know, less strong than the others. I think he's been demoted with, with each of these books. Um, can you still hear me all right? Yes. Um, with, in the first book, Case Histories, he was very, um, very much the protagonist, and he was the one who was finding everything out, and he was the one who had to go looking, and he was the detective. And then in the second book, which is called Wonga Turn. <laughs> yes. um, he is one of four equal characters, uh, I think. And in this book, he's, he's the lesser, I think, of all four characters, especially as he's, he's in a coma for quite a lot of the book, which <laughs> sort of keeps him out of action and, and says something, I feel, about my attitude to, to having a returning character. Um, and he's just not as interesting anymore, obviously, because we know him and we don't know the, the other characters. We know Louise. And I think Reggie and, and Dr. Joe are much more interesting characters, I think. Well, they all have an enormous hinterland, you know. They all huge have enormous backstories, yeah, yeah. yes. And we yeah. do know his, as you say, from, yes, from previous books. But, uh, I mean, will the fact that all your stories, one of the features of your writing has been that they've been intertwined. The characters mm. have had extraordinary, you know, intertwining, like an enormous mm. family, really. And, and do you think that writing three books with the same character in them is just an extension of that? Or was there something about Jackson Brodie, the fact that he's the first sort of real man's man that you've written? Do you think that was what made him be in three books? Um, I'm just writing a fourth, which will be the last for quite a while. Um, so it's very interesting to be writing another one, having sort of put him in the coma and thought, oh, I'm a bit tired of you, you're having a middle-aged crisis. And, but I, I thought I had to bring him back um, from that. Mm. So in this book, he comes back a much, much stronger, um, as he says, the leaner, meaner Jackson in this book. Um, and I needed to somehow make him revisit the past that he hadn't really revisited. Um, in a way, I think it's a, it's a, in a way it's a device. I like writing multi-narrative books and multi-character books. I like having all those characters intertwined. And I think, in a way, he is a device in many ways that enables you to do that, because you do have to have a thread that binds everything together and gives you a reason for being there. So in that sense, yes. And I suppose I find it interesting exploring him, because he's um, in Wonka Turn, I think, Gloria. We were talking about yes. Gloria. Gloria is my favorite character, because she's most like me. And, and I think I use her as a mouthpiece for many things, I feel, because Obviously, you can't. There's a lot of things you can't say as a human being, like you know, people who drop litter should be shot. And <laughs> I think um, you can make a character say that. Uh, and and Gloria is very much against litter. Um, Louise is like that too. Louise is like Louise that is too. Like that in this book, so she yes, says you can sort of like say, yes, you know, should be, you know, yes, hang them all, and, yes, and, and everything, yes. And I think you can, in a way, it's a way of expressing a kind of a darker side. And I think with Jackson, I Jackson's very much like me in many ways and I often say that he's really a woman in disguise because actually I do channel quite a lot of my thinking, especially my thinking about class and the past and, and the north and all of those things I think are very much come through him. So in a way, 
I feel quite close to him as a character. On the other hand, I know all characters are devices. They're not real in any way. We use them um, for a reason. But your plotting is superb. I mean, th that's why this book, it's absolutely miraculous that it works. Of course, you do love resolution and I tying things up. I love resolution. Uh, indeed. And uh, <laughs> a huge influence is presumably there if one thinks of Shakespeare and... I, mean, I, I, like, I like beginnings and endings, and I like endings particularly. I was, I was doing an event somewhere a few months ago, and, uh, and a, a girl came up to me and to get her book signed, and she said, oh, you know, you do a lot of plotting, I like that. She said, but you, you don't like endings, do you? You never really end anything. And I was like... He's <laughs> like, I think of my endings as being symphonic. You have one ending, and then you have another ending, or you have another ending, and just when you think it's all over, oh, there's another tricky little bit comes in. So I love endings, and I love resolution, and I know it's very important that everything isn't resolved because it's too neat. Mm. So there's always something has there to be There is learned. something which we won't yeah. give away in this book, which is semi-resolved, but not resolved. And in your short stories... Oh, in some um, stories, you, you, you left can leave some a of lot, those un yes. unresolved, and that was very good because you had major resolutions, yes. and then you had. Sort I felt of open it was very important in the stories for me to teach myself how not to finish yeah, everything, yeah. and I think that I mean, was a, a training ground in a way. Right, yes. yes, and I think um, emotionally weird seemed to be. Do you feel that was a training ground? That was an extraordinary book, and there seemed to be a lot that you experimented with there that you then perhaps left behind. I did. I think I'd reached the point. I mean, I was, I was really rewriting Alice in Wonderland with the mm. first three books, and that was the book that dealt with logic and language. And, and there's actually, I think, two whole pages of Alice in Wonderland, uh, or Through the Looking Glass, repeated verbatim in Emotionally Weird, and no one has ever said or pointed it out. So I think I must write like Lewis Carroll. Um, it, it, was, it was the ultimate expression, I think, of something I'd been working through mm. and, and, and couldn't have taken it any further. So I didn't, and in a way... The stories were a, a real watershed for me because I was emotionally yeah. was, um, never ever make the mistake of fronting a book by saying um, a comic novel because then the whole time you're thinking, but it's not funny. And, <laughs> and it was a very, very difficult book to write even though it looks very playful and, and, and I'd written too much too quickly after behind the scenes and I just, I didn't want to ever write again and so that's why I wrote the stories because I knew um, that I enjoy writing stories because it doesn't take very long and you can be very compact with them and, and you can get, uh, I don't know, they're, they're much more poetic, I think, in a way. And you can do things in stories that don't work in books. I, I think you can really go to town on, on, on the mythic elements in stories in a way that I find hard to sustain in a novel. But also it was just to get the pleasure back mm. in writing. Yeah, and after that... I sort of changed tack and I started writing things that were more realistic. Obviously, no novel is real, realistic because it's, it's not real. They're not really. I mean, they've been t people have said, oh, you, should, you know, Kate Atkins has started to write crime novels, but mystery and crime, you know, and, and resolution have always been no, at the heart of all I, your books. I love puzzles in books. I mean, as a reader, I love puzzles in books. Uh, I love to be taken along by a mystery and I love to be thinking what's going to happen all the time. And... As a writer, I like that as well. So it, it is a very easy segue from mm. writing books that have a mystery at the heart of them to writing books that are overtly about solving that mystery. And, and I, I did know, once, once I put Jackson Brodie into Case Histories, because he was a bit of a latecomer to it, that that was it, because you put a private detective into a book, you put a policeman into a book, and that's it. It becomes a crime novel, whether you, mm. it is or not, really, I think. So the interesting thing has been to try and not make them really like conventional crime novels, and yet you still have all the elements of, you know, 
So when people say that you subvert the genre, that wasn't your intention? No, no. I, to me, honestly, when I sit down to write, I'm writing a novel by me. Uh, and I do have to completely block out any thought of genre or what other people will think or people will say this is a crime novel or people say this isn't a very good crime novel because it doesn't follow the patterns or all of those things. I have to just think, I'm writing something that I want to write and I mustn't think of those other things. Uh, the wonderful thing about, it's perhaps especially this book actually, because everyone that I've met that's read this book, has, their faces lit up with joy, you know, and this is a book as we said earlier, it's extremely dark and it begins with the most chilling account of a murder, the kind of thing we'd re really rather not think about uh, as humans, but mm. you know, you do, they are redemptive and, and transformative and I wondered if your early love of fairy stories had anything to do with this. I think, um, I think there's always a sense of, um, of, of cosmic justice working its way out. I, I believe, but not in a Noel Edmonds way, in, <laughs> in cosmic justice. I think that, that you know, things do work themselves out in the bigger picture, usually, but not always. And I think in novels you can make that work, and you can punish the bad people and reward the good. And I do, I, and I've always, I, I, was, I was a very early reader. I, I learned to read when I was three, and my first texts were fairy stories that I read again and again. And I've said this before, I truly believed that that was, um, how the world was, that good was rewarded, you know, bad were punished, and everything worked its way out in the end. And as girls particularly, you know, because fairy stories are patterns for girls, they're all about girls mm -hmm. in trouble in the deep, dark wood. And I think in fiction, for me, to leave characters I like unrewarded is very difficult. I think that's something to do with leaving mm -hmm. open those unresolved mm -hmm. endings. And I think in the last book, um, Martin, the crime writer, who's a very good person, is left sort of hanging, and I thought that was a shame for him. <laughs> and um, Eliza in Human Crow Cave is one of my favourite characters, and she's, you know, done away with, and I, it's, that's quite hard to, to not reward the good. And but it is, it is hard to believe often that justice prevails. There's a lot of justice and in this book. I mean, this book is about justice. Yes. I think it takes some glorious belief in, in vigilantism and, mm. and justice to, to a, a much further degree because there is a sense that that really has to happen yes. in order for Louise or Dr. Hunter or mm. even Reggie to feel that life is worth living, mm. I think. <laughs> It has, of course, a wonderful ending, you know, again, we won't... Many endings. Many, yes, one of, the, one of the many wonderful endings, but the main, I mean, well, with Reggie, because I think mm. you have created with, well, with the three women particularly, but with Reggie, I hope we hear more of her. Do you think she might make her way well, back? I wasn't planning to bring Reggie back. Um, she's very popular, uh, I have to say, and I... Um, but then I, I conceived a notion of bringing all the women back. Um, as I, I was explaining this to Di, that the next book... Um, I would like, I'm always saying what the next book is going to be, and I never write it, so don't believe it. <laughs> but I would, I would like to, to write a, an homage to Agatha Christie, because I, I do love that kind of English crime. And I was thinking of bringing back Gloria and, um, and having Louise there and Reggie there, and also the Russian girl, mm. the dominatrix from all oh, yeah. Tatiana, and, and trapping them all in um, a, a country house hotel in this <laughs> during a murder mystery weekend in the snow and see what happens. It's a bit like, you know, that film, Eight Women. And, and, and I, I conceive, I have this, this vision that the whole time they're all going around saying, it'd be good if Jackson was here. It's a shame Jackson's not here. And, and then he sort of comes in on the last page and they all go, oh, Jackson, all too late. Up. <laughs> so I don't know. I would, I would like to, to write that kind of book, yes. I think.
but then I think you know it's time to rest all of that. Uh, maybe that's the sort of finale for these characters, so that they can rest for a, a Jackson while. Jackson does say in the book that he can never see um, Louise again. No, no, he says we'll always because, have Paris, and right. she says no, we've never been there, and he says not yet. So there is a book in my right, mind right. called I if Jackson yes. in Paris, in which Jackson and Louise. You've sent him there already. I mean, not in your books, no, he's but been, he's, he's been and come he's back. Yeah, he has a, he has a difficult relationship mind. with France. I right. think, yeah, love hate like we all do. The um, <laughs> As, as we said earlier, the, the beginning of this book, you know, those of you that have read it, it's an absolutely dreadfully chilling, and indeed there's a theme of, you know, the vulnerability of the parent, mainly the mother, mm. although also we, you know, in all your books, it's mm. a great theme, the kind of not just loss, but the specific mm. um, horror of, 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 of killing children and men who cannot bear the creativity of whatever it is mm. with a woman, seeing women and children, or, you know, not having it and mm, mm. Um, there's another character who slaughters several children um, that's incredibly <laughs> wonderfully written yes, with the little unicorn think, napkins hopping up the bandolines but what is that? I think it's very important when to me it's important when you're writing something that's not real but it's it, it, it's about horrible things that you do some kind of justice to the horror of the thing that you don't just oh you know bloodbath yeah. and, and that's it that, that, that you do address what that means, I think. And I think with the opening scene, I wasn't thinking about anything. I mean, I do have a, a very good friend who, in her family, there was something awful happened, which actually only later I thought, oh, that's what happened to her too, in a way. Um, and I wasn't thinking of, of Josie Russell or, or um, all of those other cases. Mm. But there is a, a type of, uh, of, of person who, or man, who man. does kill women and children. And I think that... It's fascinating that you would attack at something, and and the dog. There's always a family dog involved as well. It's it's like this picture of happiness, you know, walking along in the country mm -hmm. that, that must be destroyed. And I think that's, and, and there is another character in here as well that you know Louise finds it very necessary to pursue because they too want to destroy women and children. And I, I just um, I don't know because it's a, it's such a confounding puzzle, isn't it? Because you can't put yourself in the minds of such a person. Do you think that, I mean, the, 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 the sort of joy of, of babies and young children is a very strong... Babies are very redemptive you know, in very this redemptive. book, or the baby, because there is yeah. actually only one baby, and he Gabriel. is the baby, that's what they call him all the time, yeah. is the baby. And he is very redemptive for several, well, for two of the characters yeah. anyway, and certainly for Dr. Hunter, he is everything, I think, and I think that's... Um, is this something from your childhood, or do you think becoming a parent yourself has... I think it's much more to do with being with a parent. Yeah. When you're a, a child and a teenager and a, a young woman, you are completely invulnerable. You never think about... Mm. I mean, I used to, you know, hitchhike uh, <laughs> on my own and on English roads. Um, and I was have to die if, you know, I thought one of my daughters or grandchildren were hitchhiking on their mm. own. These days. So you feel invulnerable, and I think it's only when you have children you realise how extraordinarily dangerous the world is mm. um, in some ways. In other ways, of course, we know it's, it's not really, and we shouldn't overemphasize those dangers, but still, you know, I think it's very frightening to be a parent. Yes, absolutely. Um, you, I read in an interview that your, your next book was actually going to be about uh, back to your academic um, pre-life pre oh, that was oh about no, Jane no, Austen. That was, that that was not true. I, uh, the whole of Australia thinks I'm writing a book about Jane Austen. Right. Um, <laughs> and again, that's because... They're waiting. I it's thought I was. I was thinking, when I was doing Australian until last year, I was thinking, I'm going to do a book about Jane Austen. And, uh, and now I've, I'm not. And <laughs> so no, no. I just think it's a big jump, you know, from the kind of family life. Because family, you know, the closeness, 
of family since uh, since your first book, Behind the Scenes mm. at Museum, which was a, a fantastic kind of jam-packed, bristling with mm. these extraordinary characters, all family. Do you think that's where this wonderful use of interweaving and coincidence comes from? That, or in a sense, not to be too hackneyed about it, but it's mm. just that we're all connected. Mm. I suppose so, but I, a bit I like family. No, I don't look at it like that. I just I, I like interconnected plot, yeah. basically. I like. Well, I don't know if I actually like doing it. That might not be true, but I, I don't write in a very linear fashion. I, I think of it metaphorically as, as more like a tapestry or weaving something because I go forward and then I go back and I put something in and then a bit further on I'll think, oh, I could have done that, so I'll go back and I'll do that. So it's a constantly, it kind of grows from the middle rather than just mm. going on. And I like, I like putting that together because I like the puzzle of it, like I said before. But it's actually really difficult to write and becoming more difficult. And I always say I would like to write a linear plot, but I don't think I actually can because there's something very satisfying when you get to the end of an interwoven book to think, oh, look, I managed to do that mm. um, because it was so difficult. And, and I, and, and, but you're always thinking, can I do it? Can I pull this off? Can I make this work? It's very satisfying for the reader. I mean, Jackson Brodie says more than once, coincidence is an explanation waiting to happen. Oh, no, no, I've been, I've been criticised. I've been criticised for my books being founded on coincidence. And this book was sort of meant to be founded on coincidence. And I just think without coincidence, there is no fiction. Mm. Well, Sebastian Barry has been hugely criticised too, hasn't he? Has he? Oh, yeah, good. Massively. That makes me feel much better. <laughs> you know, and he's only got one. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think, you know, to criticise coincidence in fiction is ludicrous because yeah. you, you just wouldn't have fiction without coincidence. So the characters, you know, it's the plot that you go back and when yeah, you say you represent, you have no, the characters. No, characters are easy. Characters just... Just come. I, I, I like character, and I, I'm really interested in the development of character because all writers say, "Oh, the character just sprang fully formed." Mm. You hear that all the time, and you think it's true. And how does that happen? I would love to understand the sort of neurological process that you suddenly have a character, and they're all there. I, you know, I never think in terms of developing a character. They, right. they, I know, I know them immediately. I'm inside their head, so it's it's making them work together. That's the trick. That's what the writing is about. There are some wonderful relationships in all your books, but I think especially in this. I mean, Mrs. McDonald and and Reggie, oh, for example, McDonald, yes. and then Billy and oh yes, yes, yes. the, the near do well brother. Well, near do well is yeah. a great understatement, but he's a very bad boy. Yes, yeah. it's it's in relationships that you form characters. I mean, how you. It's very difficult to have a solitary character because even when they're on their own and they're not doing anything, they're not interacting. They are actually interacting with themselves and their past mm -hmm. and the world. There's, there's, you know, to write a sort of a, a monologue of solitude is, is, is not, you know, there is no soliloquy really, I think. I think we'll have some questions from the floor. Um, if you could raise your hand, please, and, and wait for the mic to come so everyone can hear your question. So have we got, have we got some questions from the floor? Yep, there's someone up at the back here. I don't know if you can see. Um, I just wondered, it's not a literary question as such, but I've noticed um, there's at least one taxi in Edinburgh which has <laughs> Kate Atkinson written all over it. <laughs> and I wondered if you'd ever, uh, what you think about that, about being... Uh, your, your name being carried around the streets of Edinburgh and whether you've ever got into this taxi. I and, what, <laughs> and what would you say? 
good question. I love that taxi. And, and everyone I know who you know, knows me gets very excited when they see the taxi. They always go, yeah, I saw your taxi. I saw your taxi. As if it was mine. Um, and uh, I think the taxi's almost come to the end of its life. And I think... I don't think we can hear. Oh. We've got a sound. Gone. Sound gone. Can you try again? Is that all right? Can you hear? Can you hear? No. What happened to the sound? I don't know. Alan, are you there? <laughs> no. Something's happened. Will I shout? <laughs> Is that better? No. Oh, actually, I wonder we could use the mic. Oh. Should we just? Is there another? There's. Yeah. Okay. Kate, you take that, and okay, and you. you can keep that just for the floor. Okay. Okay. Yes. So. So how do I feel about my taxi in Edinburgh? I love my taxi in Edinburgh. Um, I think it's lovely. But I think as it's coming to the end of its life and we're now in a recession, I rather think there will be no more taxes, very sadly. I have, I came, I didn't do the book festival here last year. I was here the year before and I did arrive in my taxi. It felt very right. Yes, it's, 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 yes. I, I think like the taxi. Yeah. <laughs> there should be an Arts Council grant for people that go in the taxi to write a little bit about what happened to them. You get a whole series of extraordinary... I think they should sell books out of the taxi. <laughs> Thank you. Have we got another question? Wow. Surely. Yeah. I just wanted to know what kind of um, books do you like to read yourself? I'm, I'm quite random in my reading, I think, and, and also I, I get sent a lot of books, I get sent a lot of proofs because people want me to say things uh, about them, so I always feel I have to read, at least try and read books I've been sent, so I don't always choose the books I read, I have to say, um, but I'm, I've just done the writer's table for Waterstones, I don't know if you've seen that, I've not seen it, where you choose 40 books and they have them in front of store. And that was a very interesting exercise to have to actually whittle down favourite books to 40 because um, at first I thought, oh, 40. But then I got rid of poetry and I got rid of um, drama and I got rid of... Did I just stop working? <laughs> no. And then I got rid of um, Russian literature and... <laughs> most European literature and I, thought, I narrowed it down and I thought actually I, I quite like Australian books I realised when I got to the end of it. Um, I just read the new Barbara Kingsolver, I really like Barbara Kingsolver, there's a lot of American writers I like, um, I like Jane Austen, I like Henry James, um, I really like Shirley Hazard, I don't know if you know Shirley Hazard, she's um, originally Australian, I think she's a wonderful writer. Um, so I think I have fairly Catholic tastes. I would like to think. Um, I really like the new A.S. Byatt book, the children's um, book. I think that's very, very good. Um, although I've never read any other A.S. Byatt, actually. Um, I could kind of whittle on a lot, I, I, but I, I like mostly American literature, I find. Yep, and there's someone here. Thank you. I was just wondering, this one's obviously a lot darker than your other one. Was that an influence in your life, or did you feel that you had to sort of crank it up a level to keep everybody interested in the sort of darkness of it? 
Oh, no, no, I, I prefer the, the book previous to this because it's funny, actually, but I wasn't, I was writing this, I wasn't aware at all it was darker. It was only when I was about halfway through, I thought, oh, this is quite a dark book. Um, and, and, it, and it stayed like that. It wasn't that I thought, oh, I should modulate this in some way. It was just I realised I was writing a dark book, and I, I never think of readers when I'm writing, so I don't have that sense of, you know, I should crank it up. But I think um, it's, it would be very difficult to write if you're thinking of anyone who is going to read a book, I think. So each book just um, turns out as it is, really. I think whatever, whatever tone or shade it has is just part of that book. I don't think like that at all when I'm writing. Sorry, can you just wait for the? No, no, no. Can you no, please, please no, wait for the? No, I know. I heard. Mic. No, it's it's not people. Right. I don't meet. I don't meet people and then and put them in and and nothing that happens in my life like that influences it. I do, um, all the time. I I do say to myself and other people, oh, I'd like to put that in a book, or, you know, I should remember that and put it in a book, and I immediately forget whatever that thing is. So I think it's what influences me as a writer is a much more general background of what happens to me, what happens to other people. Very rarely anything specific or any specific person ever actually makes their way into a book. Thanks. And there's, there's someone here. Um, Behind the Scenes at the Museum was such an extraordinary book and I mean, it was so incredibly well received. Did you feel a pressure on yourself after that book was, was written because it was so well received? And was there any worry in terms of being able to, to, to live up to that in the future? Um, I'd already half written the book that followed Human Croquet, so I didn't start thinking, oh, I've got to write another book. And, and, and again, I am quite good at blocking out those thoughts about you know, what will people think, how will people receive it. So, but I think writing every book, you're under pressure in a way to to deliver the goods just for yourself as well, I think. So I find every book difficult from that point of view. I find every book difficult to start, but it's not, it's not to do with what I'm worried about, what people, how it will be received. It's much more to do with just the worry of actually starting a book and, and how to make it work, I think. So I, no, I try not to think like that. I mean, I do, those thoughts do creep in, because I think this book's, um, well, actually, this book hasn't sold more than the book before it, so it's not like it's actually... It just somehow had a higher profile because of the Richard and Judy and those things. So you, you are kind of aware of, of the fact that lots of people have bought it, and you do... I mean, because, you know, it's like Di met me this, this morning, we haven't seen each other for a while, and she said, oh, I, I really love this book. And I'd say that whenever anyone says that to me, my first thought, which I never usually express, is, um, yeah, but you won't like the next one. <laughs> and, and it is that kind of fear of not producing, I think. It's more, the, I suppose, a fear of not being able to write, really. And then we'll have these on the side. Yes, someone here. Yeah, sorry. One mic. Yes, this. All right, okay, we'll come to, we'll come to you. We'll come to you next. I was intrigued to hear the phrase, the character sprang fully formed, and I wondered if as the plot developed, you were surprised by what happened in the character that had just appeared? Um, I don't think so. I, I think I am so neurotically in control of everything when I'm writing that they never take me by surprise, I don't think. But it's difficult. It, I, I find writing quite mysterious. I mean, I think 
there's a, the Martin, the writer in Wonga Chern, is, is constantly asked, where do you get your ideas from? And I'm always asked that. And, and I don't know. Uh, is the answer is his answer too. And he says, well, you know, it's a very complex neurological process. And I don't know how that happens. But I think you do make, you know, characters are your puppets. I mean, the, the one arena in which a person is God is, is a writer with a book, and that's, you know, a great omnipotence to have, and I enjoy being able to, to manipulate them and, and make them do what I want. So, no, I, I, I don't think they take me by surprise. Really. Yes. See, this, we're lucky that this is a fit young lady with this microphone. I, I know. I did, I did a literary festival which shall be nameless where all the people who had the microphones were very old and very <laughs> <small>. <laughs> um, Hello. Um, well, first of all, congratulations on the last book. I really did like it. I've, I've always been fascinated um, by the locations that you've used in your books, partly because just by chance they've always been locations that I've known quite well. And I was just wondering, are there any locations in the UK or the world that you just kind of think about, you visited, you know, and you think, I'd really like to set a book there? Oh, they're usually, you know, luxury tropical islands that I think <laughs> would be a good place to have a book. Um, well, Paris, yes, I do. I would like to, to write a book set in Paris, and I'd like to write an American road book, which I thought I have thought about taking Jackson, you know, in a Camaro across America. I think that would be quite good. The book I'm writing at the moment is mostly set in Leeds, which is a tremendous challenge, because to me, Leeds is a city from my childhood that I haven't really... I've been back quite a few times, but I have never thought about setting a book there, and um, I've just come back from West Yorkshire, in fact, doing a little another little recce and that's been um it has been challenging setting a book in a city that is one that you no longer recognize at all and you've had to to relearn and i do get quite nervous when i set a book in a place that i don't know right down to my fingertips you know like cambridge mm. i only live there a couple of months and with leeds i mean you know, i I can almost guarantee I will not do uh, any kind of event for that book in Leeds because I'll be <laughs> terrified of people kind of... I'm, I've never done a, an event in Cambridge since I set a book there because I'm just so worried that people will come out and say, why did you write that about my town? So um, I, I think I'm quite complimentary about Leeds. but um, so, so no, but it, it's so much easier, <laughs> so much easier to write books set in Edinburgh because um, you just don't have to think about anything. And, in fact, mostly I tend to stay pretty much towards, you know, southwest Edinburgh, which is where I live, I think. <laughs> I, you know, put my local shop in and things like that. That's much easier. And then there was, yeah, on this other side, thank you. Yeah, there we are. Oh, I can't see the other hand, is there? Oh, oh that, right, yeah, you're next, sorry. <laughs> see you write such great characters. Would you like to see them in a TV version of your, particularly, you know, the Jackson Brody sort of selection? I, th I think that's a yes and a no. I mean, we've been deep in negotiations with um, TV for ever since Cases just came out, and it comes and goes, and the writers change, and um, it, so that. At the moment, it's looking quite positive, but at the point at which it actually looks as if it might get made, then I start to really be disturbed because um, if I want to write those books in the future, um, and I will have an actor in my head, and I think that really mm. is, is, um, curtails yeah. uh, what you do, so I, d I don't know. And, and do you have an actor in your head as to who these 
characters would be? Well, that actor has changed over time, yeah. I have to say. I was, I, for a long time, I championed Sean Bean. <laughs> <laughs> but he was not popular. Um, I think he'd be very good. Um, but at the moment, it's a bit more up in the air, I think. Um, so, let's see. Thank you. And then this, yeah, down here. Can you put your hand up again for it? Thank you. That's great. Hello. Um, your plots are very intricate and elaborate, and um, you said earlier that you started writing them in the middle, and I just wondered how you kept a handle on everything that was going on and how you managed to resolve everything so perfectly. Um, it's much easier when you're writing. You don't, I don't get confused. Uh, the only thing I get sometimes I get confused about is whether I've written something before in a previous book, because I do get that. And that's why you know, Microsoft Word is so good, because you can just search for a whole phrase and you think, oh, I've already written that. But when <laughs> I don't start in the middle. I actually start at the beginning and then go forward and back and forward and back and forward and back. And I think because I reread from the beginning almost every day, I never actually lose track. I always know. And I think no, no, I don't. I don't use any of those kinds of diagrams and charts, and and it doesn't work for me. It's as simple as that. I don't really take notes, and I don't do any of that. I just, I just keep a handle on the text itself when I'm writing it, and I think that's why I reread all the time, so that I always remember what's happening to everybody. I think, it's, and 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 it's a process of editing. So I very rarely get to the end of a book and do a really big edit because I have been editing every day all the time that I'm writing and I think that's what that's how you keep track of everything I think thank you and then there was was there someone or there right God I'm terrible at seeing hands up How do you choose your chapter headings? I've got a friend who had a theory that you had seen <laughs> Mamma Mia <laughs> and realised that that was a story wound round songs and the titles, the chapter titles in this book all seem to be from other stories or hymn tunes or something. Like was best. there a plan in the titles or was it accidental? No, no, um, I don't always have chapter headings for my books but this book just seemed to have chapter headings um, in, uh, that came, and they're, they're from everywhere, they are from everywhere, they are from Dickens, they're from, I mean this bit I was reading it's called Satis House, which is um, it's Havisham's house, isn't it? Mm -hmm. and, um, and bits of hymns and bits of quotations and, and bits of things I've made up, and there's the beginning of Mrs. Dalloway is in there and all sorts of things, and it just just happened there was no planning every chapter just seemed to have its own little title and I get quite a lot of satisfaction from that um, just for my own um, enjoyment but the book I'm writing at the moment really needs chapter headings and has none I can't think of any I just keep looking and thinking I'm just gonna have to call this chapter after the character how dull but there's nothing that that is appropriate so it just depends I don't know on the book again but not Mamma Mia, no, ma ma I wasn't influenced by Mamma Mia, that wasn't what you were saying, was it? <laughs> they, uh, they wrote to me uh, a long time ago and said that um, in the film version of Mamma Mia they were going to put behind the scenes on a bedside table, because film companies always tell you if they're going to use a book. And that was, I went to see it in Melbourne, the only reason, because I don't like Mamma Mia, I went to see it <coughs> looking for my book, the whole film, and of course it had got you know, into the edit, it had 
dropped onto the, the cutting floor, and I was very disappointed. There's someone down here, thanks. Yeah, we've got time for a couple, a couple that, more. That person up there has hand up a long oh, time. Oh, right, sorry, who? Sorry. Um, <laughs> where, where? That, that That's one. right, you're next. <laughs> is it? Is it? Okay, um, I'm really excited. You are in the middle of another book. When do we see it? Oh, what a good question. <laughs> um, it's taking me forever to write. It's very, very, very slow, but I think it will be out next year. I hope. Right around there, yes. And? Yep. <laughs> you don't have to go for a job tonight. Um, it's, it's kind of along the similar lines to the previous question you had about your method of writing. And you said you kind of don't write in a linear way and it kind of comes from the middle. But do you always have the ending in mind when you start? I do. <laughs> <laughs> I always have the beginning and the end and, and then you just have to fill in the bit in the middle. And um, I always know where I'm going. And I always have it. When I start, I know the ending and I know the title. And those are the two things that really, really help. Um, because there's something in your brain that, that then has something to work on and it, and it really does, you know, especially the title, even if it's an incredibly abstract title. Uh, but the ending is very important because I think a lot about the ending when I'm writing, even at the beginning, I think a lot about the ending because it's, to me, uh, the ending is more of an atmosphere. It's how do I want things to feel when this book comes to the end? What, what is the feeling that's going to be left with, that the book's left with, that I'm left with, that readers are left with. And that's, I think, the, the thing that sets the tone of a book, whether it's actually dark or, or, or not so dark or funny or, you know, hopefully funny. So I think, yeah, the ending is, is very important. But also, it's a kind of optimism, because if you think about the ending a lot, you convince yourself you will get there, yeah, I think. Right. And I think that's quite important yeah. as well. I mean, I, quite, I almost fantasise about the ending. It's like, oh, it's going to be so wonderful when we get to this bit. And so I think, yeah, ending's very important. Well, this book does have a wonderful ending. And if you haven't several, read it, I several. really... Well, several. But <laughs> for me, the, the, the main ending between two of the important characters that maybe are my, my favourites, I don't know if that's the right word, but it has got many superb endings, but particularly one. So please um, read it. But um, Kate will be signing... Um, copies of this book just in the signing tent so when you go out if you just go round again and it's on the left on this side and I'm sure you can ask her things there and um, if you could just be very kind and remain seated please while um, I take Kate out to to uh, sit at the signing table and, uh, and and we'll see you there but please join with me in giving the most enormous vote of thanks to Kate Atkinson.